Reading the Globe summarizes, synthesizes, and criticizes the week's most important and fascinating stories. Here's your host, Michael Washburn. August 5, 2021. The United States and Indonesia are building a formidable alliance, driven largely by the two nations' shared antipathy toward the Chinese government's designs on the South China Sea and more general concerns about China's role in the region. An August 3 Reuters report detailed the marked success of Tuesday's meeting in Washington between U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Indonesian Foreign Minister Retno Marsudi. The two officials reportedly spoke at length about a strategic partnership designed to counteract China's longstanding territorial ambitions in the waterways north and east of Indonesia, and also to continue a joint response to the COVID-19 crisis. In the last year and a half, The U.S. has emerged as one of Indonesia's most generous benefactors in the fight against COVID, donating 8 million vaccine doses to the Asian nation. The success of Tuesday's meeting suggests that U.S.-Indonesian ties suffered little lasting harm from the furor last April over SEC Chair Gary Gensler's appointment of Alex O as Enforcement Director of the Financial Regulatory Agency. Gensler had only just taken over as SEC chair and selected O to head up the enforcement division when the latter had to resign the post because of an outcry over her record as a corporate lawyer at the prestigious law firm Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison. In that role, O had acted as counsel to ExxonMobil, the target of a lawsuit brought by Indonesian villagers over the corporation's activities in Indonesia and its alleged encouragement of soldiers accused of committing torture and murder while guarding natural gas facilities during the period from 1999 to 2001. Ever since the late 1960s, some on the left have been fond of breaking down the world into the global north and the global south, with the former generally comprising wealthy industrial powers and the latter consisting of poorer post-colonial nations struggling to develop their economies and assert an independent political and cultural identity in the face of a legacy of exploitation by the North. But what did North and South really mean here? The historian Paul Johnson, in his survey of 20th century history, Modern Times, points out that in this scheme, Australia got lumped together with the global North, despite its location in the Southern Hemisphere. Johnson argues that North was really just a modish, politically loaded term referring to what people used to call the West. Those who talked about North and South tended to believe that the North were the greedy and aggressive bad guys, and that the South had shared cultural, economic, and political interests to assert in the face of Northern or Western arrogance and meddling. In this formulation, China and Indonesia, and indeed pretty much all the nations of Asia, were members of the Global South. But this week's developments remind us, as if we needed reminding, of the ever-intensifying enmity between China and other nations of Asia that repudiate China's claims to military and political dominance of the vital South China Sea and all its vast economic potential. They may also light the way toward what one hopes will be an increasingly close diplomatic alliance and friendship between the United States and Indonesia, the fourth most populous country on the planet, and an indispensable ally in the fight against the scourges of terrorism and global pandemic. Horror author Cynthia Paleo is one of the latest in the seemingly endless parade of victims of online mobs 
pushing cancel culture, and browbeating, harassing, and intimidating real or perceived ideological foes, or even those who simply appear insufficiently in conformity with woke beliefs and values into silence. As Rachel Llewellyn has reported in an article on the website Book and Film Globe on August 2, Paleo planned to follow up her hit police procedural, Children of Chicago, with an anthology of writings entitled Cops vs. Monsters. In an age when so many progressives loathe and seek to disrupt and defund the police, that's a rather unfortunate title. To the woke mob, cops are monsters. Not some of them, but all of them. The very people who never tire of warning others about the evils of stereotyping and generalizations joyously engage in the same and are quick to lash out at anyone seen as sympathetic to those who don uniforms and badges and put their lives on the line to protect the public. Online rage against Paleo's editorship of Cops vs. Monsters led her to abandon the project in haste. In her article, Llewellyn points out that there is nothing explicitly or implicitly racist about taking the side of the police. In an age when so many celluloid depictions of the struggle between cops and the lawless feature officers who are themselves members of racial minorities, including, memorably, Morgan Freeman in Seven and Denzel Washington in Fallen. We hear a great deal from sources like CNN about the dangers of COVID denial or the tendency to ignore science and disregard the necessity for vaccinations and safe practices in public. Such stubbornness and recalcitrance in the face of science does no one any good. Be that as it may, what is truly incredible is that some people persist in denying that cancel culture is a real problem. In their view, it's a hoax, fostered by Fox News and ideological allies, for the purpose of stirring hysteria against the woke sensibility and its influence on contemporary life. An essay by Sarah Hegie in Time in November 2019 took issue with the very existence of cancel culture as people understand the term. Such sentiments are not unknown on college campuses, where some members of the woke progressive crowd adopt the self-serving and self-justifying stance that politically incorrect speakers and sources are not the victims of oppression or harassment at all. They're scarce simply because no one is interested in ignorant viewpoints and bad ideas. But honest and fair-minded people acknowledge that cancel culture is eating like a cancer at the foundations of free and democratic society. And that is why a letter on justice and open debate in Harper's Magazine in July 2020 bore the signatures of a wide range of writers, journalists, scholars, and public intellectuals, from conservatives and centrists like David Brooks and David Frum, to people on the left, such as Noam Chomsky, Margaret Atwood, and Cornel West. Even today, loathing for censorship and persecution cuts across ideological lines and unites people who cannot agree on anything else. As the trial of disgraced Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes looks set finally to get underway, with jury selection scheduled for the end of August, speculation abounds about what strategies the prosecution and the defense will put to use. Holmes is the defendant who, as a 19-year-old Stanford dropout, launched Theranos back in 2003 with extravagant claims about her company's potential to revolutionize the medical and startup fields. The claims rested largely on a supposed technological breakthrough, 
a blood testing device that could produce reliable results through analysis of a blood sample so tiny it could come through the prick of a finger. Theranos quickly raised fortunes from investors, reached a $9 billion valuation, and gained a board of directors including prominent names, such as famous litigator David Boyes, former Secretary of State George Shultz, and future Defense Secretary James Mattis. But Holmes' star fell when it emerged that Theranos blood testing devices were not the breakthrough the firm claimed, that the results were far from reliable, and that Holmes and her colleague Ramesh Sunny Balwani had baldly and repeatedly lied to investors, the media, and the public. An article in the Wall Street Journal on August 2, Theranos Patients, the emerging wild card in the trial of Elizabeth Holmes, suggests that the prosecution will rely heavily on the testimony of ordinary people who made use of Theranos technology for prognoses about critical health matters and got unreliable results. The article mentions one Brittany Gould, who had gone through three miscarriages before getting pregnant, again, and used a Theranos blood test to try to gauge the likely outcome of this pregnancy. When the test found incorrectly that she would have yet another miscarriage, Ms. Gould relayed this bad information to others. The psychological cost must have been high indeed, and it was entirely avoidable had she used a reliable testing device. This is but one example of the fraud Theranos perpetrated concerning questions about which it is really not permissible to be wrong. As the journal's article states, the upcoming trial is likely to receive wide and intense scrutiny. But how many people will draw the right lessons from the Theranos fiasco is another question. There are many issues here, but put simply, it will be well to have more skepticism about kids, dropouts no less, who say they have the scientific expertise to transform the world. Kids should not be put in charge of other kids, let alone 800 adults, as Theranos once had in its employ. And no one should escape tough questions and rigorous due diligence simply because she is making waves in sectors and industries that do not pass muster with the avatars of diversity. Many of us were not at all surprised when Bong Joon-ho's brilliant film Parasite won Best Picture at the 92nd Academy Awards and became the first non-English language film to receive that honor. But some people perhaps do not realize just how faithfully its depiction of class-tinged antipathy, deception, and madness reflects the social reality of contemporary South Korea. An article in Bloomberg Businessweek's August 2 issue makes reference to Parasite in its analysis of the real estate market in South Korea and the frustrations that many consumers have with the skyrocketing cost of decent housing. Specifically, the article cites Parasite's contrasting of the spacious and elegant home of a wealthy Seoul family with a squalid, filthy, Wi-Fi deprived, and easily submerged digs in which a working family has to live. The scenarios presented in Parasite will be all too familiar to many South Koreans in a market where the average price of an apartment in Seoul has gone up 90% since President Moon Jae-in's term began in May 2017. Clearly, the Seoul depicted in Parasite is no alternative reality, but one in which millions of ordinary men and women struggle from day to day. According to Cookman Bank figures cited in the article, 
Apartments there on average now cost 1.1 billion won, the equivalent of $953,000. And the median price of an apartment has gone up 60% throughout the country as a whole. The bank's figures indicate that buying a home in Seoul will cost you the equivalent of 17 years of median yearly household income. Other interesting facts in the article concern the practice whereby landlords require tenants to pay a sum equivalent to about 60% of a property's price, known as a jeonzi, instead of paying rent. The landlords then make use of that take to engage in real estate speculation. No wonder the Democratic Party to which President Moon belongs suffered a drubbing in mayoral elections in Seoul and Busan this past spring. And in a Gallup Korea survey released on July 23, 51% of respondents disapproved of the job Moon is doing, with his failure to curb out-of-control real estate prices given as a common reason. No wonder so many South Koreans are displeased with Moon and his party's prospects in the elections set for next March do not look bright. Life in North Korea may be bad, but the sad truth is that certain aspects of South Korean society have come to look rather like a grotesque parody of capitalism and can only give ammunition to those who wish to find fault with a free market system and question the dichotomous schema of South Korea good, North Korea bad. One wishes the otherwise excellent Bloomberg Businessweek article put things in historical perspective. More than 36,000 American soldiers died in a so-called police action from 1950 to 1953 to preserve South Korea as a free, democratic, capitalist country. Reining in the excesses of speculative capitalism gone wild might be the greatest service any sole politician could perform to honor the sacrifices of the past and prevent the social reality depicted in Parasite from growing ever more insidious and conducive to class hatred. Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper. Audio Hopper.